agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Today, in part three of our election 2020 series, we'll be discussing the Trump and Biden approaches to the coronavirus pandemic, as well as healthcare policy in general. We'll start with COVID-19, which has at present led to over 181,000 deaths in the United States. And with the well-respected IHME model protecting that, predicting that U.S. coronavirus deaths will be at more than 410,000 by the end of this year. Now, the White House argues that President Trump, Trump took strong action early on by banning travel from China, creating what's now the world's largest testing program from scratch, implementing Operation Warp Speed to help develop a safe and effective vaccine in record-shattering time, encouraging Americans to not give in to unreasonable fear, and striking a judicious balance between public and economic health. The president's detractors, on the other hand, say that he routinely discounted the seriousness of the coronavirus, especially early on. He acted far too slowly to ramp up testing, he failed to adequately coordinate a national response effort, and that he's actively worked against public health measures such as masking, social distancing, and limiting gathering size. So we'll start today by talking about how President Trump has responded to the pandemic. So uh, who wants to start off? How would you say President Trump has started, has, has responded to the coronavirus pandemic? I'll start if that's okay. All right, Doc, go ahead. Uh, one thing that uh, you didn't mention there, and you mentioned many of the things I hit on my list, but the one thing that I, I liked was he gave uh, the responsibility for managing local, uh, the way it was handled locally to local authorities rather than trying to handle the whole thing at a federal level. Uh, he let the governors in states with uh, small populations uh, spread out, uh, handle it differently than mayors and governors in states that are very populous, like New York and California, uh, which I think was, a, was an excellent thing. Okay, so in other words, that that uh, relying on the governors and kind of letting federalism do its thing allowed for a more flexible response that met the individual needs of states as opposed to a sort of a one size fits all federal response is, is sort of the argument there. All right. What are some other perspectives in terms of President Trump and his handling of the pandemic? Olivia. So I I understand um, like what Doc was saying about letting states handle it um, like locally, which makes sense for some scenarios. But I think the problem with not having more like federal guidance and federal legislation is that with a virus, it spreads from state to state. There's nothing keeping a virus from spreading from um, one state to another, like the border is not going to stop that. And especially with travel, um, if you are in a place like New York, there's nothing keeping you from traveling to another state and taking that with you. Um, so I think if there was more of like a cohesive national response and it wasn't so much divided between like Democratic governors and Republican governors, like there would have been less spread from state to state. But with letting like certain states be really restrictive on like lockdown orders and mask mandates and other states not really doing anything, um, if there's a massive breakout in one state, that's not going to stay like in that local area, the, the breakout is going to spread to other states and kind of um, kind of discredit the actions that they're trying to take to protect their citizens. OK, what else do people feel that President Trump has done particularly well or maybe particularly poor, poorly things that stand out to you in terms of his response? Skylar, um, I feel that Donald Trump has been rather irresponsible since the beginning with his response to COVID. I mean, if you look at his State of the Union back in February, he had a 78-minute long speech 
And he took a brief 20 seconds or so to mention COVID and then went on later to spend five minutes talking about Rush Limbaugh and presenting him with an award. Um, and he has consistently projected racist terminology uh, regarding COVID-19. A photographer documented on a news conference in March on March 19th that he had taken a black marker and crossed out the word COVID, and he had actually replaced it with the word Chinese, cre- creating it to be read as Chinese virus. This has created a scaremongering tactic, not only within the U.S., but across the world. There's been rising instances of like hate crimes against people with Asian descent, and that's creating a sense of, I guess, uns- instability with his response, because instead of tackling it as a virus and not necessarily blaming somebody for the start of the virus, he has been very adamant on this all-encompassing blame on China for this pandemic. And he did quickly ban air travel to and from China um, while while claiming the risk to the United States was low while cutting off that travel to China. And I feel as we have progressed to this point in time, we have 6.2 million cases of COVID in the United States alone and 188,409 deaths. Um, And I just feel that it's been relatively irresponsible of him. Okay. Olivia. So I think the problem with um, Trump kind of claiming this as a big victory because he acted on, I think it was January 31st to um, suspend travel with China. And then two weeks later, he um, suspended travel with the UK um, we already had the problem in the United States. And I understand that he, you know, he did act to limit, I'm not saying at all that Trump didn't take any action. He did act to limit, um, you know, the, the spread of the virus from other countries into the United States. However, um, by February 27th, he was still pushing the narrative that the virus is not something to worry about, that we only have um, 15 cases and that it's never going to go above 15 cases and it's just going to disappear, which I think most people know is not how a virus works. It doesn't just disappear. The only reason that like the Spanish flu, quote unquote, disappeared, which Trump has referenced, is because most likely because of herd um, immunity, because so many people got it and it it didn't have enough people to keep spreading to. Um, But we already had the problem in the United States and it was spreading and um, Trump was pushing this narrative to the people that it was nothing to worry about, like nothing, you know, it's it's not going to spread anymore, um, which gave people false sense of security. And um, people weren't prepared to take the personal actions that they needed to to protect themselves and to protect others. And it still is that way today. Um, Trump on February 27th said that we have everything well under control, that it's not going to be an issue. And um, from the beginning of March until about... Mm, the third week of March, we skyrocketed from 100 cases to 100,000 or 100 deaths to 100,000. No, maybe it was cases. I think it was cases. Um, either way, literally 10 times more cases just within the first few weeks of March, um, while he was still saying it's nothing to worry about. Um, and then also what I found was really interesting was the um, stat article, which compared the United States to um, South Korea, Germany, uh, Singapore and Australia, maybe. Um, anyway, it was it was four other industrialized countries that um, had that had their first fifteen cases the same time as the United States. And the article was basically saying that because those countries took action much more quickly than Trump, if we scaled up their population size to the population size of the United States, they still and we multiplied their um, caseload and their deaths by that same amount. They still would have had between seventy and ninety nine percent fewer deaths than we have today in the United States, um, which I think does put a lot of blame on Trump and his failure to act and his hesitation um, in regards to the number of deaths we have. And we will put a link to that stat article in the show notes. Faith, um, I agree with a lot of what Olivia said, especially even I have a quote that's even a couple of days earlier than the one that she discussed where um, Trump was at a campaign rally in Manchester. And he said, looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it will miraculously go away, I hope. Um, and just that kind of sense of more not taking an, an initial seriousness of the situation saying, I hope it'll go away, 
rather than addressing saying, we're putting a plan in place. These are the things that we need to do because we don't want to invoke too much fear in the public. But I think in March, really, like we were like late on the response. People got extra scared. It was very, very scary time. Colleges sent um, kids home. Um, everything went shut down. And it was just really, if we would have had more of an initial reaction of there needs to be a plan put in place immediately so that we can address this from getting out of control, possibly today it wouldn't be as big of a crisis that it is. Noah. Yeah. The one major thing I have an issue with was a lot of times during the initial lockdown, Trump tweeted multiple times that certain states needed to reopen. And although, like, Yes, states eventually do need to reopen to help open back up the economy. This was just in the beginning stages of the COVID care here, really, basically in the United States. So when like he was tweeting that we need to open Michigan, Minnesota, and all these other major um, like states, it's like you're trying to open these states for what reason? It's like yes, these places are on lockdown, but I mean we could potentially even be in a worse situation if we weren't locked down for the beginning part of March. And to me, one thing I just didn't. To me, it was just him not handling the situation well enough in certain aspects. Because again, like, yes, the governors do need to make decisions on what they can and can't do. But then again, to go back and say, well, they should just open back up is not going to help. It's going to potentially hurt more and more people. Olivia. Yeah, I think um, him like tweeting things like liberate Michigan and um, supporting or I guess um, opposing lockdown orders and supporting protests for those lockdown orders, first of all. I think this was like one of the first steps of him politicizing the virus and making it like a Republican versus Democrat issue where he kind of pushed this narrative that like Republicans are tough and there's nothing to worry about. And, you know, we're we understand that it's this has a low death rate and, you know, the economy is more important. And Democrats are, you know, basically using this to make me look bad and uh, blowing it out of proportion. And um, he definitely politicized the protest. Um, and, and like what Doc was saying about how he left um, decisions to local authorities and to states, he did. But he also undermined the states that were trying to restrict um, restrict going out and restrict the spread of the virus um, through lockdown orders and mask mandates by tweeting in support of citizens who were protesting those mandates. And he also was supporting protests of maskless people who were gathered in large crowds. And those people tended to have Trump hats and be flying Trump flags, which I would suppose is why he wanted to support them. But um, it it just sends a lot of mixed messaging on whether this virus is something to worry about and makes it difficult for states to um, really enact policy that's going to work if the president is um, continually discrediting them. And I think uh, certainly a conservative response might be that Joe Biden and the Democrats have also been politicizing this, uh, giving into what they might call the politics of fear and not considering the trade-offs between economic and political health. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more. But Alan, go ahead. You had a comment. Yeah, I just definitely agree with um, Olivia on the rhetoric thing. I think um, at least for official statements by the White House, they did put out guidelines for the states to follow. They did, for a while there, follow the public health experts' recommendations and sent them to the states. But yeah, the entire, well, not the entire time, but especially around May, Trump just sort of went off script and started talking about, well, we need to reopen the states. We're losing money, you know, liberating Michigan and all that stuff. And I don't really think it helped the conversation at all to do stuff like that, and to have such a contradictory message. Because for the American people, either there is a virus and it's, a serious threat or there isn't a virus and we should go back to work. A lot of people don't have like understand the nuance in that conversation. I feel like. Okay. And so you're, you're pointing out that the, the white house did in fact release reopening suggestions, guidelines, and that some of the comments of the president seem to be in contradiction to those guidelines that the white house uh, re- released. Uh, Skyler. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, there's been a bit of miscommunication, and I agree with both Alan and Olivia when it comes to the rhetoric coming from our president on terms of how we should go about dealing with COVID. And I feel that his stance on mask wearing specifically has been relatively wishy-washy, um, but you see him only occasionally out in public with a with a mask on and then you've also seen him take off of his mask 
take off his mask. Okay, Doc. Oh, when uh, when when you talk about the uh, the rate of infection between the United States and the uh, countries in Europe and uh, Australia, and that, I think well, other than Australia, the uh, countries in Europe are very compliant uh, compared to the people in the United States who are not compliant to authority at all. Uh, they all pretty much do what they want to do. Uh, you can, you will either uh, do exactly what the government tells you to do, or you will uh, go about your business on your own. Okay. Uh, I've, go ahead. I was going to say, no, I think that's, uh, it's important when we are making cross-country comparisons to keep in mind that people do have oftentimes different attitudes toward a lot of things and uh, uh, adherence to official word being one of those. And no, that's a good point to bring up. Absolutely. Uh, you know, personally, I would prefer not to wear a mask when I go shopping. Uh, and that's just me. Uh, on the uh, economics, I, I honestly believe we have to get this country going again. Uh, we just can't uh, roll over and, uh, and pretend like this is going to be, and I hate this term, the new normal, uh, there's, uh, it's, uh, it doesn't have to be the new normal. Okay. What was the other thing? Oh, the, the other thing that, uh, that sort of uh, got me thinking was, and uh, one of us said it, I, uh, Trump called it the Chinese virus, which didn't bother me a lot. But somebody before mentioned the Spanish flu. Uh, which was the Spanish flu. Uh, there's Ebola, which came from the river Ebola. Uh, there's the West Nile virus. Uh, it's not a big deal to name a problem for what it is. And this was a problem in China. And they were compliant in not telling the rest of the world what was going on. World Health Organization was compliant with China and not telling the rest of the world was what was going on, which would have alleviated this problem immensely if we'd have known about it beforehand. Okay. Uh, yeah. And let's see, Faith, I think you're next. Um, I just kind of wanted to go back to a point that I think it was either Skylar or Olivia made earlier. Um, more regarding what was going on in Michigan at the time um, that Trump was initially making these um, tweets such as Liberate Michigan is one thing that I had a big problem with, especially we were talking economically, is at that time that the tweet was issued was Michigan was third in the country within a certain state to have the number of COVID deaths that it did. So you do need to, I understand you do need to balance economic reopening the economy, but at a time where the virus is clearly not well cont uh, contained, I think it brought forth like a serious issue. Okay. Uh, let's see. I think Noah, you are next. So I was also going to talk about how our societies are kind of different. So like in America, we have a very individualistic society, which is like, we only seem to be worried about ourselves and not other people. While if you do look at other countries like Japan and like really Japan is a really good example for this. Like they are very much so a collectivist society where it's like, we need to be worried about the greater good than ourselves. So I think one reason why we can like make a good comparison to other countries is because yes, we do have this individualistic society, but we can be a collectivist society. Like I think this virus is showing that we need to be more of a collective whole than just individualistic ourselves because if we only just care about ourselves, it does not matter to me that I don't have the virus and I could just go out. But it's like, it's, I should be worried about going out and potentially getting the virus and spreading it to my loved one. And then another issue I had with, with Doc earlier when he said that um, we name things from where they originated, the Spanish flu, nobody knows where it truly did originate. Some people say it was in Spain. Some people say France. Some people say China. Some people say the United States. And so to say, to name it where it originated from is kind of just not true because it didn't, yes, it did come from China, but to blatantly call it the Chinese virus 
is trying to pinpoint and target a certain group of people that it is their fault for this. I personally have a friend who is from Asian descent, and she has experienced very racist things because of this rhetoric that he has been imposing. She one time went to a grocery store and she had her mask on. She had a cleaning wipe. And some lady said, you should just go back to where you came so you can just go get the virus and die. This is creating a very negative talking and standard that it is okay to blame people that they had nothing to do with. And so to just blatantly say it's okay to call it that is not okay to me. And so perhaps there's a distinction that needs to be made or should have been made. We can argue about whether or not it was between blaming the Chinese government for things that they may have done or not done that led to the rapid spread and distribution of this, as opposed to blaming Chinese people who obviously had, you know, uh, no, no, uh, no role on this in, in terms of its spread. OK, uh, let's see. Skylar, I think you were next. And Olivia. Talking about his previous rhetoric regarding COVID-19 <clears throat> and his mask wearing. You don't really see Trump often in public with a mask. And when he is seen in public with a mask, he has taken it off. And he has also like taken this mask wearing and kind of made it this trait of being un-American, like wearing a mask, you're unpatriotic. Um, saying that wearing a mask shouldn't shouldn't be mandatory. And I feel like him not being very, very specific about how mask wearing prevents the spread of COVID drastically. Um, he just needs to be very deliberate with his rhetoric around mask wearing and him expressing his support for using a known drug that treats malaria um, that actually ended up leading to Americans misusing this drug and either falling seriously ill or even dying from using this this malaria drug. And I feel like he isn't, we shouldn't look to the present for the efficacy of drugs and vaccines and like mask wearing. That shouldn't be, we shouldn't be looking at him to tell us that this is what we need to do. We should be listening to the public health officials, he should actually be taking a step back and letting those public health officials step forward and take take the reins on things that would help prevent COVID. Uh, Olivia and then Alan. Okay, so a couple of things. Um, on the Chinese virus thing, just real quick, I think that the reason um, this has blown up as such a, a politicized issue is because of Trump's track record of saying um, to be frank, racist things and to, of fear mongering and kind of criminalizing um, non-white people. And I, I also, like Noah was saying, I also have a close friend who is Asian, who has gone out in public multiple times and been told, like, don't bring your COVID in here. Don't bring, like, leave the store. Don't bring your COVID in. Um, so I do think Trump realizes um, whether he had racist intentions or not, he is aware of how the public is responding to him pushing the this um, name of the Chinese virus, um, and he continues to push that narrative. Um, additionally, I 100% I agree with what um, like Doc was saying about how the response to the virus really does depend on how people, um, how cooperative people are with uh, government orders. However, Trump's base has shown for three years now that they are so loyal to him and Trump's base will follow what he says and does. They will. They've proved that. So I think if Trump had um, had portrayed the severity of the of the threat early on and if Trump had led by example and worn a mask and hadn't made comments like, well, mask wearing isn't for me and hadn't called Democratic governors who had lockdown orders in place draconian because he said on Twitter, along with a lot of Fox News, um, was posting about these Democratic governors being draconian and, and supporting protesters um, who were resisting draconian lockdown orders. And um, Trump has pushed a, a narrative that the mask mandates are um, an infringement on civilian rights. Um, and that narrative has, has taken off. So I think if Trump led by example more and Trump had himself portrayed the importance of mask wearing and um, had inf influenced his his citizens um, on the importance of 
social distancing and supporting the 10 people or fewer um, orders on social gatherings. I think lockdown, first of all, would have been more effective. Lockdowns were not very effective and reopening while he pushed to reopen in April and then again in May um, kind of just made the lockdowns for nothing um, because our cases have skyrocketed again. But lockdown wasn't even very effective itself because I think Trump had convinced so many people that this wasn't something to worry about, that mass gatherings were still happening and people weren't wearing masks or taking precautions even during lockdown. Um, And additionally, some of those gatherings were Trump rallies. Trump was pushing for public rallies with thousands of people in states that had 10 or fewer um, social gathering laws in place. So I just, I think the politicization of the virus and um, Trump's narrative surrounding the virus kind of um, led to such an individualistic um, culture that we have right now. Hey, Alan. Well, I kind of disagree. I do agree that the rhetoric is seriously problematic, but the thing is, I think this stuff would exist even if Trump wasn't here. I think he amplifies it, perhaps. But um, I know Noah was talking about a collectivist versus an individualist society. And I don't really see it that way with America. I see it as a hostility to concentrated power. I think that's sort of rooted in who we are as a country, which is why I liked the way that we did. Well, I at least like that we um, left it to the governors to decide how they wanted to implement the restrictions because I did, I was worried that if it was, that if it came directly from the presidency, that that would be challenged, that if we had a universal lockdown standard, it would create this idea that, oh, why are we doing this? I'm not seeing any COVID cases in my area of the country. Is this like a conspiracy? Because, you know, a lot of people believe in that it's a conspiracy for some reason, which it isn't, but a lot of people do. I've met people who do, which is very unnerving. But I think the idea that this is solely Trump's fault is discounting the fact that we as a nation are just extremely hostile to concentrated power. And that creates a lot of problems with um, situations like this. Okay. Yeah. Now let's move on to look at Joe Biden's stance on this issue. Now I should point out that, of course, we're going to be in a very different place. Well, hopefully a different place in January 2021, no matter who happens to be Uh, taking the oath on Inauguration Day. And of course, you know, Joe Biden has had the advantage of being able to critique President Trump in hindsight, whereas President Trump had to act in real time under intense pressure. But with all that in mind, how do you see Joe Biden's approach being different to that of President Trump's moving forward? And, you know, which approach do you think makes more sense to you? Who wants to start us off? Olivia. I think the most critical difference between Biden's proposed response and Trump's response um, is that Biden has said over and over again that he would leave the response up to the authority of um, public health officials, um, which Trump has not done. Um, Biden has. So Trump has like kind of silenced Fauci progressively to the point that Fauci doesn't even really like talk at press briefings when they do happen anymore. Um, because Fauci was, I mean, the facts that Fauci was presenting, and I do want to point out, Fauci has served every presidency since Reagan. So Fauci has, we have no reason to believe that Fauci has um, political motivations between the facts that he's giving out. He has no reason to want to make Trump look bad or anything like that. He's just giving the facts as a health expert. Um, And so Trump has been silencing Fauci um, because the, the facts that Fauci has been giving contradict Trump's optimistic narrative about the virus. And so Biden has um, promised to, you know, let Fauci have the floor at press briefings and let health officials kind of um, dominate the conversation around the virus and um, give advice to the states on how we should be responding. Um, Trump has not really given much of the floor to public health experts. Um, And also, Trump uh, appointed Pence as the head of the COVID task force, um, which doesn't really make any sense that none of the task force is a public health expert. Um, and Biden has, you know, proposed actually building a task force with health professionals who know what they're doing in response to a disease. Okay. Uh, Doc. I think Biden's plan is, is very similar to Trump just to uh, expand on uh, what was said uh, previously. Uh, Biden says he'll turn everything over to the uh, the health organizations, which basically says, I have washed my hands of this. Uh, 
the okay American public, it's not my fault. It's it's them telling you what to do. Uh, one glaring example that I read in his plan was he wants to hire at least at least a hundred thousand new federal government workers as contract tracers. When the federal government hires a hundred thousand people, they are always hired. They never go away. If the virus goes away, that hundred thousand people will still be there doing something. And some people might might argue back. I imagine on the left saying, "Well, that that may be the case." But we've seen examples, for instance, in census workers who rise and fall, you know, based on need. But uh, I guess that we would, that would remain to be seen in terms of contact tracing. All right. Uh, let's see who. I think let's see, Alan. Yeah, you had a comment. Yeah, I um, actually agreed with Doc. I was really surprised how similar Biden's plan was to Trump. And that might just be because we're in the middle of the pandemic now and there's not too much to be done. Both wanted to reopen schools. Both were looking to fast track a vaccination as soon as possible. And both made the argument that, well, Trump has claimed that he's already helped at risk populations. And Biden says, I'll help them more. The biggest distinction for me for, in Biden's plan was his focus on healthcare workers and how he feels that they've been underserved during this pandemic and that they need more attention because they are like in a world of hurt right now in a lot of ways. Let's move on to healthcare policy more generally from, from COVID. From the beginning, President Trump has argued that the Affordable Care Act, which is the major accomplishment legislatively of the Obama administration, was a disaster that should be repealed. And President Trump actually came very close to getting a repeal in Congress, but that effort ultimately failed. Now, the president is also focused on drug prices. At one point, he, in fact, argued that Medicare should have the right to negotiate prices with drug companies. Uh, he's also taking action to make generic drugs more readily available and to lower drug costs for Americans. And finally, President Trump said that he's committed to overturning Roe versus Wade, and he's actually taken what actions he could to restrict abortions, which a lot of people would see as a major uh, health issue. So how do you think President Trump has done on health care? And what do you see as his main successes or failures in this area? Uh, let's see, Skylar. Um, with Trump's general health care plan, um, I feel that he has actually kind of been a detriment to it. Um, and s although he did remove that premium in regards to the Affordable Care Act, where if you were uninsured, you would have to pay upwards of, I think it was an average of $695 and then about 300 or so per child in the household, whichever would equate to a more amount of money um he did he did overturn that uh that premium fee that you would have to pay without being able to provide your own insurance but i feel that his campaign website even for this election has been incredibly barren on what he wants to do he hasn't really given a a plan if that makes sense he's really only been using words he he doesn't actually have actions to provide his supporters with how he wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And he even attempted to enforce a gag rule in Maryland in clinics that would prevent patients from providing a referral to individuals that wanted an abortion. And I feel his stance on Roe versus Wade even and wanting to repeal it is a detriment to public health because if you remove that access to abortion, you're just going to see a higher rate of individuals performing abortions themselves with coat hangers. There are going to be more emergency room visits and even more deaths to, to women who are being forced to carry pregnancies to full term. Okay, Doc. As uh, strange as it may seem, uh, I don't think uh, Trump has done what on health care. Uh, he was he's fixated on eliminating Obamacare, but he actually uh, 
hasn't articulated a plan on on a positive nature of this is what we're going to do instead of this. It's like we're just going to get rid of this and and then let the chips fall where they may. He did a few little things, uh, but uh, in all honesty, in the healthcare area, I don't think he's done much at all. Okay, uh, let, let me try to let me try to make the argument uh, for the president on this, since no one no one else is. I don't know if this is a good argument or not, but I just want to get your reactions. What do you think about the argument that President Trump's big tax cut is sort of indirectly a health care plan, or at least affects health care? What I mean is if a big tax cut actually improves the economy and taxes are something we're going to talk about next week's show. But assuming it does, then everyone's in a better position to afford whatever they choose to spend their money on, whether it's, you know, health insurance, starting a business or, you know, whatever else they want to spend money on. I mean, is that a is that an argument you're going to buy or are you just roll it all rolling your eyes right now? Olivia? Um, so I like, okay, I mean, I, I work a part-time job, um, but I, I do right now make around 30000 a year um, working part-time. And I only received, I want to say like maybe a thousand more on my taxes for 2019, which I mean, I know that I'm young enough to be on my parents' plan, but like for the average American who's making around 30,000 a year, there are a lot of people making 30,000 a year who are not on their parents' plans. And like a tax cut that small does not allow you to afford health insurance. It absolutely doesn't. And um, like what Skylar is saying about um, him repealing the premium that people who um, haven't had insurance throughout the year are forced to pay on their taxes. Um, that was repealed because he repealed the individual mandate that under um, the ACA that um, requires all Americans to have health insurance throughout the year. Um, and him repealing that basically forces Obamacare to fail because the only way that Obamacare keeps um, keeps insurance prices low is by generating a bigger pool of um, clients for the insurance companies. And um, so if you're forced to have healthcare and you otherwise maybe wouldn't because you have a lot of money or you're really healthy, um, then the only people who are buying health or health insurance are people who can't afford their hospital bills should they come up, should an emergency happen, um, or people who are really sick. So when um, the individual mandate is repealed, Obamacare kind of um, does more harm than good because the only people who are going to be um, wanting to buy health insurance are going to be the higher risk people for insurance companies to take on. So of course, insurance companies are going to have to skyrocket their rates to be able to accommodate those people who are more likely to end up actually having to use their insurance on large bills. Um, additionally, oh, and by the way, Trump hasn't proposed anything to replace Obamacare. So um, his administration and a lot of Trump supporting media keeps um, talking about how Obamacare is failing, but they're using data from 2018 and 2019 a lot of the time to discuss how Obamacare is failing, even though um, a lot of the critical um, proponents of Obamacare were repealed in 2017. So of course it's failing now. It's not in its entirety right now. Um, and in regards to um, the uh, Roe v. Wade issue and Trump wanting it to be overturned on the Supreme Court, um, I am very pro-choice, but without even getting into that, I think the bigger problem is that if we overturn a major piece of legislation like that in the Supreme Court, um, the Supreme Court rules on precedent a lot of the time. So if the precedent becomes, oh, we can just like overturn, um, you know, a major piece of legislation and change the rules decades later, um, what's going to happen to the precedent in the Supreme Court? I think there are a lot of lasting consequences if that is to happen. Okay. And on the individual mandate point, before we go on, I want to uh, uh, make mention of the fact that, in fact, everyone pretty much agrees that the only way insurance works is that if healthy people subsidize less healthy people, and that was the point behind a mandate, it being an essential part of that. Now, what conservatives typically counter is that even if that's true, it's not right to force people to buy health insurance and that doing so is a pretty significant violation of their economic Freedom, at least that's the most common argument. I think, uh, Alan, you had a comment to make. Yeah, you were just about to say what I, you just said, what I was about <laughs> okay. to say, honestly, okay. which was, yeah. So. 
All right. Uh, sorry, sorry about that. I mean, just stealing your <laughs> thunder there. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask uh, a number of people mentioned abortion, and uh, around eight hundred and sixty-two thousand abortions were performed in twenty seventeen. That's the last year for which we have really good data, or at least the last year, last year for which I could find really good data. And we've seen abortion rates continuing to drop from high points in the mid nineteen eighties or so. Now. Given that the vast majority of abortions aren't done because of significant threats to the health of the mother, some people would argue, especially people who believe that that life begins at birth and that healthcare is fundamentally about preserving life, that this is the overriding health issue of our time. And some people would, in fact, say people focus on COVID so much, but even if it hits that 400,000 mark by the end of the year, that would still probably be half of the number of abortions. And so therefore, as a healthcare issue, abortion trumps everything else, no pun intended there. And so that's why I know a lot of people who are strongly pro-life say this is not, this is a healthcare issue. And that's why I'm voting to reelect President Trump. What do you think about that? Olivia? So one of my biggest beefs with um, the abortion debate, or at least the abortion stance on the Republican side is that, um, Bush and Trump both have been um, strong advocates for uh, the restriction of abortion and also strong advocates for um, abstinence-only education um, in the school system. Um, And Trump also recently was discussing, well, Trump has always pushed for um, like, quote unquote, religious freedom um, with insurance companies and allowing them to refuse to cover birth control um, for their clients. And I think that all contradicts each other because the lack of like birth control is used to prevent pregnancy. So if you're restricting access of birth control to people um, for religious reasons, then abortion rates are going to increase because there are going to be more unintended pregnancies. Same with um, abstinence-only education. I've done a lot of research on this. And abstinence-only education um, basically... Uh, falsely um, inflates the rates of failure and, um, you know, creates a narrative around birth control causing cancer um, and kind of convinces students that, you know, there's no use in, there's no point in using um, contraceptives because they don't work. Your only option is to not have sex at all. Um, Teenagers don't think that way. Teenagers are going to do what they're going to do regardless. So um, abstinence only education statistically increases on an unwanted pregnancy rates. Um, comprehensive education that teaches students how to use and what to use contraceptives decreases unintended pregnancy rates. So I think if you're going, if you want to decrease the amount of abortions that are happening, then you need to increase the resources to prevent unwanted pregnancies. And um, the Trump administration seems to be going against all of that, which makes no sense. Okay. Uh, Doc. Uh Abortion and the Supreme Court and the law, one of my hot points. I do not believe abortion should be something that should be legislated. Uh, It's between one human being and their conscience. Uh, It should not be legal nor illegal. Uh, uh, It's between a human being and their doctor and and how they feel about it. Personally, I think it's a horrible thing, but I don't think it should be legislated. It's just a a thing that just gets everybody in an uproar. And as I say, it's an an individual choice that nobody should be involved in except you and wherever your conscience take you. Okay. Skylar. With contraceptives in general, they're not only used to prevent pregnancy. A lot of people who use contraceptives are using it to help add a bit of stability to their menstrual cycle. Um, it, it has other purposes other than preventing pregnancy. And I feel that preventing access to the contraceptives will also increase the amount of abortions. And I feel with abortion as a whole, um, I 
it should be a individual choice. I agree with Doc, but I also disagree with the fact that it should be neither illegal or legal. I feel like there should be access to it. There should be criminalization to people who have used this method to help them with a choice that they necessarily didn't want to have. I mean, I feel without access to contraceptives will also lead to that higher rate of abortions. And without access to abortions, you're going to see a higher rate of deaths to people who aren't getting medically done abortions, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, And let's move on with the time we have left and look at Joe Biden's health care plan. Now, of course, Joe Biden was vice president when the Affordable Care Act became law, and he has consistently argued for improving and expanding Obamacare as opposed to either scrapping it like President Trump would like to do or creating a system of universal coverage as many progressives want. Now, Biden's key proposal is to include a public option for individual insurance, and this is something that President Obama initially wanted in the Affordable Care Act, but he backed away in large part because of pretty fierce resistance from health insurers. Now, Biden has also called for expanding health care subsidies and premiums, as well as for offering premium-free coverage for people who would have been eligible for the expanded Medicaid coverage under the ACA, but who live in one of the 12 states that haven't currently expanded Medicaid, which works out to just under a third of Americans living in those states. Now, Biden's plan is estimated to cost around $750 billion over 10 years, which the campaign says it's going to pay for through increasing taxes on the wealthy. And so let's let's uh, dive in and talk about Biden's plan. What do you what do you think is Biden Joe Biden's approach better than what we've been seeing or we've heard or haven't heard from Donald Trump? Does it go not far enough, too far? Who wants to start us off? Looks like Olivia, you do. Go ahead. Yeah, I actually really appreciate Biden's proposal on health care. I I like the idea of Obamacare anyway. Um, I I know it didn't really, it had some unintended consequences and it it wasn't as perfect as um, it was intended to be. But the way Obamacare was intended to work, I really like. I think it makes sense that um, requiring all Americans to have health insurance, even healthy Americans who are at lower risk of using that health insurance, um, of course, will drive down costs. And um, I appreciated that under Obamacare, insurers were not allowed to um, reject high-risk clients with um, pre-existing conditions and underlying diseases um, because those people need health insurance. And a lot of, there are a lot of people with pre-existing conditions who cannot afford thousands and thousands of dollars out of a medical bill, um, if they have an emergency come up and they don't have health insurance. Um, one of Trump's biggest, um, I guess, critiques of Obamacare was that it, um, disproportionately negatively impacted, um, low-income individuals, which I understand because you're forcing them to purchase, um, what is essentially a product that maybe they can't afford. So I really like um, how Biden has added the public option. I guess my um, biggest concern would be that the public option has limitations, like you have to qualify for the public option based on your income so that um, the private insurers can still stay afloat. Um, Because that's, I guess, my biggest problem with universal health care is that while the United States um, has the most insurance health care or the most expensive health care costs and is the only um, major industrialized country that doesn't um, guarantee universal health care for its citizens. We also lead innovation in the world. Um, and I think that's driven by um, the option for profitability on um, new drugs and innovative technologies. Um, so I think it's, I think profitability is, um, it is essential in making sure that we are, you know, constantly developing new medications as um, issues arise and to address health concerns. Um, But I think it's also, uh, it's a human right to be able to pay your medical bills and not have to go bankrupt or be drowning in debt when an unexpected emergency comes up. So I think the public option kind of caters to people who um, really need um, something to fall back on if an emergency comes up, but can't necessarily afford um, the high cost of a, of a private insurance company. Okay, Doc. Uh, having uh, listened to the uh, Obamacare plan, all I can 
think of when I read Obama's plan is it's Obamacare 2.0. And all that rattles around in my mind is we're going to have to read this bill, pass this bill before we can read it. Uh, And the other thing that bothers me is the promise of remember you can keep your own doctor if you like your doctor and you can keep your own plan if you like your plan, which we're out now lies. So I have no trust in this at all. It's zero. Okay. Uh, See here. Now, what about the argument that Joe Biden's plan just doesn't go far enough. I mean, there are there are plenty of people on the left, uh, certain like Bernie Sanders, for instance, and Elizabeth Warren, and some of the people who are challenging Biden for the nomination. They no, we actually need to be like every single other rich industrialized country and make sure that we don't have this crazy quilt of various types of coverages and with most coverage or half of coverage being provided by employers, but to actually ensure that everyone is covered through whether it's Medicaid, Medicaid for all, or Medicare for all, or some other sort of universal coverage mechanism. What do you think about that critique of Joe Biden from the left that he's not nearly going far enough and he's being far too, well, unprogressive or far too conservative in his approach to health care? Is there anything to that? Olivia? So I, I, like I said before, I definitely understand um, the the push for universal health care. Um, again, nobody chooses their health status. Nobody chooses to have a health emergency or, or to, you know, for their child to come down with cancer and them not be able to afford the treatment. Nobody chooses that. Um, so we all, everyone deserves the security of knowing that if something comes up, you will be able to afford it or you'll have insurance to fall back on. Um, I understand that everybody deserves that. Um, I. Like I said before, I think the way that Biden's plan should work, and I'm not sure if this is how he intends for it to work because it was a little bit vague, but I think, you know, if you, if your income is high enough and, you know, if he were to set limits on who qualifies, um, I think it's important, like for Medicaid right now, another one of Trump's um, criticisms is that Medicaid kind of disincentivizes people to work. Um, So I think if like with Biden's plan, you would be able to have a higher income, but still qualify for like, a completely government, governmentally subsidized public option where you wouldn't have to pay at all. Um, number one, it would be way less expensive than just, you know, having free health care for everybody because there are people who can't afford it. There are people making, you know, ungodly amounts of money who can't afford it. Even somebody who's making 100000 a year um, probably can't afford it. So I just think, you know, if there's a public option that's specifically for people who make a low enough income that they cannot afford health insurance. Um, If that's what Biden's public option or expansion of Medicaid would be used for, I think that kind of caters to what progressives want, which is just that everybody, no matter their income and their status, will will have access to health insurance. Okay. Noah? Um, With me, I feel like Biden's plan is kind of the step in the right direction for Medicare for all, if that's what people want. Because I feel like we aren't going to be able to drastically just all of a sudden just have a Medicare for all option. I feel like what he is trying to do is trying to get America used to this potential option and then push for Medicare for all. Because I think it was Olivia who was or Olivia earlier who was talking about like people go into debt and like cannot pay these bills. And so for me, that's one major flaw. It's like I cannot control what happens to my own. I can control what happens to my body to a certain extent. But I can't control everything, and I should not have to go to thousands of, sometimes hundreds of thousand dollars in debt just to make sure I'm a healthy human being. And so I feel like this public option that he's going to have, if it is with lower income people, I think that's the step in the right direction to get that Medicare for all. Hey, Skyler, you see, uh, with I have a a very high support for a single payer option to have a universal health care, and I agree with Noah that. Even though Biden's healthcare may not come off as something that the other candidates that were running were using as their healthcare plan, you see Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren being very big supporters of a more universally accessible healthcare to all Americans. And personally, growing up, I had my grandfather have some serious 
health issues where he needed a double lung transplant. And he was let go from his job and he had to pay a premium for COBRA insurance. That is a private insurance. And the cost of COBRA alone took three individuals in my family to come up with the cost. And I feel like there's absolutely no way that one singular person is in the same boat. There are thousands of people in the same boat. And I feel like healthcare is a right, not a luxury. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have to have a job to be able to be able to pay for insulin. You shouldn't have to have a job that provides insurance uh, that will allow an individual get a organ transplant or chemo. I feel like without a universal accessible, we're going to always have that little bit of fallback. There's always going to be individuals that won't reap the benefits. Um, and I feel that Biden's healthcare plan might be able to get future candidates, more progressive candidates foot in the door to create a universal health care plan. Okay. And of course, that's something that conservatives, uh, they don't see as a step in the right direction, but a step in the wrong direction, which is oftentimes why they oppose it so much. So, uh, Olivia. I think it's really important to point out, kind of going along with what Skylar was saying, that um, the middle of a pandemic is not the time to have to worry about losing both your job and your health insurance. But for people who rely on employer-based insurance, um, the millions of people who became temporarily or permanently unemployed, well, not permanently, but you know, their jobs weren't guaranteed to come back um, because of lockdowns caused by the pandemic, um, they... They, number one, have to worry, especially if they're high risk, they have to worry about, you know, having major consequences um, to uh, as a result of contracting the virus um, on top of how are they going to pay those bills? What if I die from COVID, which is a possibility, and I now don't have insurance and who's going to pay those bills? Or what if I'm hospitalized for a long time and have lasting um, morbidities from COVID and I can't pay those bills? So um, I think the pandemic kind of um, put a spotlight on just how uh, how problematic our current healthcare system, or I guess kind of lack there of a comprehensive healthcare system, because all we really have is an incomplete ACA. Um, but it just kind of put a spotlight on how it's failing so many people, because it, it should not be a case that if you lose your job, especially in the middle of a pandemic, you also lose your health insurance, which is why I think if Biden or if a future candidate had um, kind of like a subsidized plan where if you become unemployed, you can, you know, there's a public option that you don't have to pay any of the cost. Or if you have, if you have a really low income job, you only have to pay a small portion of the cost. Um, I, I think that would be ideal because how are you supposed to pay for, you know, coming down with COVID if you also don't have a job or employer-based insurance? Okay. And the last word today is going to go before we wrap up to Doc. Doc, what do you have to say there? This is another thing that uh, sort of uh, bugs me. I mean, and I'll be cliche here. I mean, we built the atomic bomb. We put a man on the moon. There has to be a way to get some minds wrapped around this outside of the, poly the political aspects of it. We need uh, like an Elon Musk to figure out what we need to do and then do it. Uh, it, it is just too politicized. Uh, the conservatives won't budge. The liberals won't budge. We need to arbitrate this with, a, with somebody with a higher mindset that can come up with a really good idea. And I'm not sure who that is, Maybe it's a bunch of engineers instead of a bunch of politicians. All right. Well, I think on that, that's, that's a note I think that everyone agrees on, that it seems like this is something we should be able to do, but it has been frustratingly difficult to achieve in this country. And at that point, we will, we will close. But before we go, I want to remind everyone that if you have a question for any of us, or if there's something you'd like us to talk about, expand upon, expand upon, clarify, just let us know. Send an email at mail at politicsguys.com 
or post a comment in the episode link we'll put up in our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash politics guys page. And we will do our best to answer your question or respond to your comment in an upcoming episode. And if in addition to this series on the 2020 elections and our regular weekend show, you would like a third full length politics guys episode every week, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad free up versions as well as other various good stuff. You can get the details and check everything out at patreon.com slash politics guys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, but you want all that content, just email me, Mike at politics and I will get you set up with everything. If being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment that you'd still like to help out, you can do that through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com. We'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show. It doesn't cost anything. Leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share episodes on social media. And for more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit in URL in, in, in Reddit. Duh. Okay, I need a more coffee. You'll find a you'll find a URL in the show notes. And also, again, there's that Facebook page, facebook.com slash politics guys page. And we are on Twitter as well at politics guys. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup and analysis on Saturday and the next segment in our election 2020 series on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.